So I'm praying that we would encounter God this evening as we listen, as we dive into scripture, and as we look at what God has for us. So this evening, we're going to be going through a typical Christmas passage, but I hope that as we're going through it, that we would find ourselves in awe, in awe of what God has promised and in awe of what God has done, and that it would ignite a joy and a passion and a peace, a hope, because of the reality of that promise. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9, it's a big book in the Old Testament. And while you're going there, I'm just going to go through a quick little history lesson because every book is actually written in a particular context in history. And when we understand the history, then we can know what's being said in the book a lot better. And we can apply it to our lives a little bit better. So anyways, Isaiah, he was a prophet during the 8th century BC. And he... um, he prophesied in the, in the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel. After David and Solomon, there was a split of the kingdom. And the, so there's the northern and the southern. And so Isaiah, is, um, he's prophesying in Jerusalem, in, Ju- in Judah, down in the nor- southern kingdom. Sorry, okay. And so there's Isaiah. He's in Judah. And what, what he starts to prophesy about, you know, it's this massive book, 66 chapters. It's almost, it's been referred to as a mini Bible. Because in the Old Testament, there's 39 books. And it's a lot about how there's... Um, there's this covenant and there's promises and yet there's also punishment because he's, God says, he has this covenant with his people and says, if you obey, obey me, I will be your God and you'll be my people. But they kept rebelling and he gave them time after time, chance after chance and warned them and said, finally, okay, well, I'm going to punish you. And so that's what, a lot of what the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about. about. A lot of this Oh, it's kind of doom and gloom in a sense. But that's never the end of the story. Punishment is never the end. Judgment is never the end. After that comes 27 chapters of hope and restoration. Just like 27 books in the New Testament that talk about Jesus. The hope and restoration of this world, of this life. That's why we have hope. So here's Isaiah. And he prophesied during four different kings' lives. It starts with Uzziah, and then Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. And so you see all of those different king times during or throughout the book of Isaiah. And we read in Isaiah chapter 6 that that's where Isaiah started his ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Right? And so then he continues on into chapter 7, chapter 8. And what's happening at the time that Isaiah is writing is that Assyria is the world power. So Assyria is modern-day Iraq and Iran. And this is kind of a hard um, map to follow, but the green is all of the Assyrian um, empire, basically. And so all of that green, that's what Assyria was doing. They were coming all the way far west to get, or yeah, west to get um, Judah and Israel. And so the king at that time in Assyria, his name was Tiglath-Pileser III, and you can read about him. You can name your child that too if you want. Um, It would be awesome. And so in chapter 7 of Isaiah, we read about this, and in 2 Kings 15 through 17 as well, we read about this. And so he is coming over, and what he is trying to do is obviously trying to take control of Israel. 
and, and Israel and all of the other places, you know. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, decides to partner with Syria, which is above them, Damascus, Rezin, the king up there. And they're like, let's fight back against Assyria. And so that's what they're thinking. And, and so they're like, hey, let's get Judah on board too. Let's go to King Ahaz and get them on board. So they try to get him on board, but he's like, no way, I'm not joining with you guys. Well, they get kind of upset and say, well, we're going to attack you then. So then we read about how the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria come against Judah. Well, Ahaz is freaking out. And in chapter 7 of Isaiah, Isaiah says, don't fear. Stand strong and call upon the Lord. Trust God. Don't trust anybody else, but trust Yahweh. Well, Ahaz was not a very smart king, and he didn't listen to Isaiah. Instead, what he did is he went to the world power, to Assyria, saying, Hey, Tiglath-Pileser, you want to help me in this situation? And so he partnered with the enemy. And so then he comes over, and he conquers Damascus and, and some of Israel, and they go into exile. Some of them are taken away. It's not the full exile of the northern kingdom yet. But now... This king, Tiglath-Pileser, turns his back on Ahaz. And chapter 8 is all about what's going to happen. That there is punishment because Ahaz didn't follow God. He didn't trust God. You know, if we read in verse 22 of chapter 8, it says, Then they will look toward the earth, and they will see only distress and darkness, and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. You know, it looks pretty dark in this situation. It doesn't look too hopeful. It's pretty ugly. It looks hopeless. And that's where we pick up our chapter. Chapter 9. And it starts out, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But... In the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people who were walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of, that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. You know, in the midst of a hopeless situation, in a dark situation, there comes this passage. And it starts off in the Hebrew, there's this word, this little particle key and it's used about four or five times just in these couple couple verses and what it is it's this word that says but it's this big but right in scripture that starts with verse one in niv it says nevertheless but it's the same word for but so even though there's there's this uh, idea of doom and gloom and distress and punishment there comes a neg- a, a promise of restoration of reversal That what was going to happen is not the end of the story. So nevertheless, even though Zebulun and Naphtali were were humbled, you know, and Zebulun and Naphtali is a big deal because at this time of writing, they were probably kind of all, all overtaken already. They were the first two tribes to be overtaken in the northern kingdom. 
And so when Isaiah is saying this, they understand, yet we've been humbled because there is no more. There's very few left in the land. Foreigners have come in and they've settled. So yes, they've been humbled. But, he says, in the future, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles, which is the same area. Naphtali borders the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun is part of that area. He says, in the future, God will honor this. God will honor this area. You know, there's this hope, this little glimmer of hope in the dark, in the future, that this is going to happen. You know, in the midst of this dark reality, God says, I'm going to bring a reversal. You know, in verse 2, he continues on, and he says, The people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those who are living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I love this verse. Because the way that Isaiah even writes it, it has, there's two different verb cases or forms or whatever. Because he uses, for the, the present reality, he uses participles. So maybe, basically, verbs that have I-N-G on the end of it. So those who are walking in darkness and those who are living in the shadow of death... That's the present reality that he's describing. This is happening. This is our present reality. We're living in darkness and living in the shadow of death. But for the other verbs, he uses a tense that's the perfect tense. And the perfect tense, we don't really get it in the, in the English. We translate it as past tense. But the perfect tense in Hebrew is beautiful because it's as if it has already happened. It's accomplished. It's done. It has already taken place. It's as sure as, as the sun is going to rise. Basically, what he's saying is that, hey, even though the present reality is darkness, there is a hope. There is a light that is going to come. It is as sure as anything. It will happen. It's going to take place. And in Scripture, when we see light against darkness, light always depicts hope. That's what it's talking about, is that there is hope. Even in the shadow of death, there's hope. A light has dawned. They have seen a great light. Basically, that this light and hope will come as sure as the sun is going to rise. You can bet your life on this fact that this hope, that this life will come. It's as good as accomplished. So in the situation of a hopeless, or in the midst of this hopeless situation, Isaiah brings this word, hey, there's light coming. There's hope that will come. It's coming. You can be sure of it. You know, he continues on and he talks about how you have enlarged the nation. Once again, that's the perfect verb. You have enlarged. You know, they would have read this and thought, um, you haven't enlarged our nation. In fact, we have been taken out. We are no longer. Naphtali and Zebulun, they were gone, basically. There was just a little remnant. And so, but here again, Isaiah is saying, hey, in the midst of this bleak situation, this dark situation, this hopeless situation, it's as good as done. It is going to happen. It is accomplished. He has enlarged the nation. 
And when he does this, there's going to be joy and increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. And you know, a lot of us, I'm assuming, are not agricultural because a lot of us probably sit behind a computer and type and then complain about our backs, right? Because that's our culture. But Tom, I'm sure after you're done harvest, you get excited because you got the field off. And it's exciting when all of the, when you're done that hard, those really long days, like 16 hours, 18 hours, maybe 20 hours. I don't know. I'm not a farmer, but I can only imagine the excitement. And this is a huge deal for Israel because they were so reliant on the agriculture. They were so reliant on that. And in fact, when they came out of Egypt, they were, they were told that they had to celebrate. Celebrate the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. Celebrate the harvest. And the reason God tells them to celebrate is because we're sometimes slow at remembering and we forget things. So we have to put things in our calendar to remember And this was one of those things. This is the idea, the image that he's given, that there is going to be great joy. In the midst of a dark situation, there's this promise of joy. He continues on and talks about how how they're going to rejoice, as in the dividing of plunder. And basically, that's when they've been victorious over their enemies in a war. You know, I, uh, I've never been in a war. I don't know what that looks like. And it's not even close to comparison. But if you are an athlete and you play your arch nemesis in a city, a city final or provincial final and you win, you know that you're celebrating afterwards. There's rejoicing. There's excitement. Isaiah is saying, hey, that same joy is going to come. Even if it doesn't look like it's a reality in the slightest, even if you can't even see the glimmer of hope, it is a sure thing. It's going to come. It's as good as done. He continues on and talks about in verse 4, that in the day, or for as in the day of Midian's defeat. You know, and in that, he's referring back to Judges 6 and 7, when Gideon took 300 men against thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Midianites, and he surrounded the camp, just these 300 men, and all they had were these torches with clay clay pots over them and their horns. And during the middle of the night, they smashed those jars, and their light burst forth, and they yelled, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And all they had to do was stand And watch as God brought victory against their enemies. That's what Isaiah is promising. This will happen. It's as sure. It's a sure thing. It's as good as done. It is accomplished. In the midst of a hopeless situation, Isaiah is promising some big things. And it almost sounds too too good to be true. It almost sounds like a naive faith. Or a false hope. Or an intangible belief. Nothing that you can actually grab onto. And I'm sure that people at this time would have read this and said, Isaiah, you're crazy and you're out of your mind. Do you not see the bleak situation around us? Do you not see that Zebulun and Naphtali are gone? Do you not see where we're at? Why would you give us a false hope? Why would you even talk about this? This is not even a glimmer of truth. How can this happen? And you know, maybe some of you actually feel that way sometimes when you come to church. Maybe some of you sometimes feel like all of the hope, the joy, the peace, the love, the 
the fulfillment that comes that we talk about when we're in church, you're thinking that feels like a false hope, like a naive belief, something that's intangible that I can't actually grab onto. Maybe you think that while we, while we sing the songs, they're all pretty and nice words, but that's not true. And you know what? I would say that's totally legitimate if you've thought that, if we stopped here. Because there's nothing to base this on yet. In this passage, there's nothing yet that says this is a sure thing other than verb forms. There's nothing tangible to base it on. And that's why we need to get to the rest of the story. We need to get to what comes next because in verse 6 is where the tangible comes in. This is why we can have a sure hope in these promises. He says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. The reason that they could have hope that this was already done, that it was accomplished, that it was going to happen as sure as the sun was going to rise, was because God is going to do it. Yahweh Almighty, by his zeal, by his jealous love, he was going to intervene. And he was going to burst into this hopeless situation and bring hope. The only reason that we can have assurance of these things is because God said he would do it. It's as good as done. You know, they, the Israelites, the Jews who would have read this, they would have been excited and, and encouraged because they were waiting for that Davidic king. That king who would bring joy, who would bring peace, who would set them free from their oppressors. You know, that's what they were waiting for. But they actually would have been quite confused, I'm sure, as well. Because some of the titles given to this child that was going to be born was something new. They hadn't heard this before. They hadn't heard that a child would be called these things. And what was he going to be called? It starts off with wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. You know, counselor, that word, um, a lot of times refers to a great strategist or, or a king. So they would have expected this king to come in and have great strategies to overtake their, their enemies. Or it can also refer to somebody who, who shows the mighty works of God, which they had seen Moses do. They had seen Ezekiel. They had seen different, different people, Elijah, do these crazy things. But here's the thing, wonderful counselor. That was referred to as God. Wonderful, that word Pele in the, in the Hebrew, that was reserved for God. And in the next chapter, this same wording is used to describe God. What kind of child would this be that he would be called Wonderful Counselor? What kind of son is going to be given that he would be called Wonderful Counselor? What about Mighty God? Mighty God, yes, of course they would expect a king to be mighty. And in the, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of 
um, Jewish names that have the word or the name of God, L, in it. Samuel, Ezekiel, that last little E-L is usually something about God. You know, God is my hero or my savior or whatever, my light. And, And that's what a lot of these names mean. But this one's different. To actually be called God? That's never taken place in the Old Testament. Who is this child that will be called Mighty God? Mighty God. And what about Everlasting Father? What kind of baby is called an Everlasting Father? You know, Everlasting, they would have thought, okay, well, the Davidic line that was, that covenant that was given to Solomon, to David, in 2 Samuel 7, that says that you will reign and somebody will reign on the throne forever. That's probably what they were thinking when they hear the word everlasting. But everlasting father. You know, it's interesting. Father was, I don't think, ever referred to in calling a king a father. And it was rarely mentioned as God is a father in the Old Testament. Yes, the Israelites were called his kids. But the, and so in, the implication is that God is the father. But very rarely was he actually called that. Once again, who would this baby be? Who would this child, this little helpless baby be that he would be called everlasting father? And what about prince of peace? You know, they had been waiting for this prince of peace, a king who would come in peace and establish peace, but they hadn't seen it yet. Who would this child be? What kind of child would this be? You know, these are very interesting titles. It doesn't make sense. Who is this child who would burst onto the scene and bring hope in a dark situation? Who would this child be? And we have the benefit of having 2,700 years of history to look back since this was written. And we can say with assurance that this child was and is Jesus Christ. And he was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And he came as a little baby, just helpless. Hopeless, not hopeless, sorry. Helpless, in the stable, vulnerable, weak, reliant. And yet it was God. God came on the scene. And when you read this passage through the lens that Jesus is that hope, Jesus is that light, all of a sudden everything starts to make sense. You know, Matthew 4 actually quotes verse 1. And because Jesus fulfilled that, in his life. He brought actually hope. He brought honor to Galilee, to Zebulun, to Naphtali, because he was raised in Nazareth, which is in Zebulun. And he spent most of his ministry time in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, which is in Naphtali. You know, this is what Jesus did. He brought honor And he enlarged the nation. How? He invited the Gentiles in because he died and rose again to make the two one, the Gentiles and Jews, to make them one body. This is what Jesus did. And when you think about when he came to earth, what we're celebrating in this season coming up, when we we celebrate Jesus' birth, all of a sudden some of these things start to make sense. He was the light that burst into the dark world. Think about Mary and Joseph, angels in their glory showing up right. Think about the the shepherds who were in the dark. And then all of a sudden the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were overcome. 
there was brightness that burst into the dark night, into a dark situation. Or you think about the star that's over Bethlehem showing the light has come. The hope is here. The light of the world is born. God himself came. You know, I don't think that it was just a coincidence that these things took place. In fact, I think that God is the greatest poet and the most intricate architect ever. That he would have these details announce the birth of his son that was prophesied about 700 years before. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of the world who bursts into the darkness and he brings hope to the hopeless situation. That's what Jesus did. He is the light of the world. In his ministry, he said, I am the light of the world. And he was, you know, what Jake read, he read in Genesis 1 and John 1. And in John 1, it talks about how Jesus is the light of all men. And he was coming into this world and how he created everything that was seen. And it reflects Genesis 1, that creation story. Jesus speaks and there's light. Jesus shows up and everything changes. Jesus comes and there is hope. I love it because Christianity is the only religion where God didn't require us to be good enough to earn our way into heaven. In fact, it's the only one where God came down to pay the penalty. At Christmas, we celebrate how our God loved us so much that he humbled himself. And he came to earth as this helpless baby, baby, and he grew as we grew. He had hunger as we hunger. And yet the whole reason that he lived was to die. Because the wages of sin is death. And God didn't want us to just walk in darkness for life. He didn't just want us to be separated from him for all of eternity. No, he came to earth so that he could take that punishment, take that penalty, and die on a cross. And in that situation, everything looked bleak. Everything looked dark. There was darkness that covered the land when Jesus died. And I'm sure his disciples were wondering, God, what is this? Where are you? Where is your light? Where is your hope in this situation? Because the one that we thought was our Messiah is now dead. Where's the hope? And sometimes we feel that in life. Where's the hope? You're not alone. But on the third day, Jesus rose again. And I believe that there was a burst of light again. When he took that first breath and he came back to life. And he still lives and he is that everlasting father. He is that prince of peace because he made a way for us to not live in our sin anymore, but to be set free. To not have shame rule our lives anymore, but to have peace. To have joy in here. Not that's dictated by our circumstances. It still might look bleak, but we can know without a shadow of a doubt that our God is hope. And that he shines on us. And I can build my life on that. And I can stand firm in that. He is our wonderful counselor. Our mighty God. Our everlasting father. Our prince of peace. You know, this is not just some fairy tale. 
is not just something, a lie that we conjure up to make ourselves feel better. No, I've seen Jesus bring life. I've seen him set people free. I've seen him set and give victory to people over their issues, over their sin. We can't change ourselves. Try it. (laughs) Try for a day to be good. You can't. We need Christ. I've seen Christ change people. He's in the business of bringing hope. He's in the business of changing and transforming us. That's who our God is. So maybe today you feel like you're in a hopeless situation and you're in a despairing situation. Maybe you feel like you've been living in darkness, like you've been living in the shadow of death. But can I remind you and proclaim today that a child has been born, that the son of God was given for you to be set free. Can I remind us that the world, the light of the world has come to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring peace to the restless, joy to the mourning, purpose to the lost, healing to the broken. Because Jesus was born, he died, and he rose again, and he still reigns in heaven. Can I remind us of that tonight? This is who our God is. Can I encourage you to claim that tonight? Maybe some of you feel stuck. Maybe there's addictions. Maybe there's depression. I don't know what you're going through. Jesus can set you free. And if you feel stuck tonight, ask him. Ask God to come to shine his light in your dark situation again. And claim that and say, Jesus, I believe that this is going to end. And claim that victory and walk out. I've seen it, guys. I cannot explain it. God does miraculous things and he brings freedom and he brings victory and that's what he wants to do tonight if you're in that hopeless situation claim it tonight ask God to shine on you maybe some of you though feel like you're caught in a dark situation and maybe it's because of natural consequences of your bad decisions You know, Israel was in a bad situation. Why? Because they rebelled. And God said, God warned them over and over and over again. But finally said, okay, punishment is coming. But that was never the end of the story. Yes, our God is a God of justice, but our God is a God of grace. The end of the story is not punishment. It's not exile. It's not destruction. In fact, the end of the story is restoration. And that's what God also wants to do. Maybe you're in a season where it's dark because there's natural consequences. You know what? Cling to that hope that Jesus is alive. He is that hope. And he wants to bring you out of that dark place. Invite him again into that dark place saying, God, I'm going to take your hand. I'm going to walk into the light with you. I'm going to walk into restoration with you. I don't know how, how it will look. I don't know what it will look like. Everybody has a different journey, but I know God will do it. Because that's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. And maybe some of you, though, you're here today and you're in a dark situation because you live in a fallen world. And you are the victim. You did nothing to deserve this. If I can encourage you guys to cling to that hope again. You know, I wish that it would end tonight. Sometimes it doesn't just boom, done. But you can know that it's a sure thing. 
that it has been accomplished. And you know what? Our God is a mighty God, a conquering king, and he is going to come again, and we're going to see this fulfilled once again in the natural eye, where he brings judgment, and he sets us free from our oppressors, and we get to live in victory with him. So if you're the victim tonight, remember Jesus is the hope, and cling to that. Walk out with him. If you're struggling through some stuff, talk to Pastor Mark, talk to Pastor Paul, talk to myself, talk to somebody, and let us walk with you into that light as well. You guys, our God is the God of light. The light of the world, the hope of the world. And he came 2,000 years ago, first dawning that light. But his light still shines tonight. And so tonight, I have something a little bit different And as you guys leave, what I have are just candles, little candles for each of you that the ushers are going to have, and there's going to be little baskets. And what I'm going to ask you to do is take a candle. And yes, it may sound cheesy for a lot of you, but I don't care because I'm a girl and I can be cheesy, okay? So bear with me. But what I'm going to ask you to do is take a candle, and every day this week, for five minutes, ten minutes, whatever, light the candle. And if you're in that dark situation, give that dark situation over to God and receive that light. Say, God, come shine on this dark situation, in this hopeless situation, and claim that hope. God, I know that you're victorious. Maybe you're doing okay today, though. Maybe you're doing more than okay. You're rocking life. And you know Jesus, and you know the light. You know what I'm going to ask you guys to do? Light that candle five minutes a day and ask God, who do I need to share this light with? Who needs the light of the world? Who needs hope in this dark life? Because if they're without God, they're without hope. So who are you going to share the light with this Christmas? Who are you going to invite into your home? What does that look like? I'm going to encourage you guys with that little challenge. Simple, but I think powerful. Because so many times we leave and we forget what we, what we learned even. So if I can remind you, if the candle can remind you, as you light candles this Christmas, remind yourself, God is the light of the world, and he shines in my dark situation, and he brings hope. You know, in closing, can you imagine what would happen if this Christmas we actually lived as though we believed that Jesus is the light of the world that came 2,000 years ago? You know, if we lived like we believed it, I think, I think that Christmas wouldn't just be about busyness, materialism, or even family time. But rather, we would be in awe of our great God. I think Christmas would take on a new, a new dynamic that is powerful. I think that we would walk in the promises and that the hope, the joy, the peace, the, 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 Oppression being gone, the victory would come into our lives if we lived as though we believed this. I think actually that we would be so excited that we would be compelled to share this light with somebody else because it's too good to just keep in to yourself. I gotta share it. I gotta invite somebody to Christmas Eve. I think if we really believe this, that we would live as children of the light. Like we're called in Ephesians 5, walk as children of light. So if everybody wants to stand, we're going to close and Jake's going to come and lead us. But if I, yeah, maybe tonight you don't know Jesus. 
Maybe tonight you don't know this light of the world or this hope. And if you don't, I want to give an opportunity for you. So with every head bowed, I want to ask, maybe you want to get to know Jesus tonight. You want to invite the light of the world into your life tonight. And if that's you, I just encourage you to raise your hand. If anybody here, amen, awesome. Awesome. And in a little bit, when we pray, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And you can pray it in your head or out loud if you want. But I'd encourage you, do not leave this place without telling somebody as well. Fill out a form to say, hey, I accepted Jesus as my savior this week or tonight. And we're going to contact you because we want to walk with you in that light as well. And for the rest of you, maybe some of you are in a dark, hopeless situation this Christmas. And you need some hope. You need Jesus to dawn in your life, in your situation. And if that's you, I want to pray with you. So if you guys could just raise your hand if you feel in that situation tonight. Okay, we'll pray. Yeah, amen. Those of you who want to accept Christ, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer and then I'm going to pray over everybody else. So just repeat after me, Jesus, I thank you for coming to this world. I thank you that you are the light who brings hope that you died on the cross for my sins. God, forgive me. And I accept you into my life and ask that you would be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Yeah, and over the rest of you, I just want to pray. God, I just thank you so much that you are good. God, that you came 2,000 years ago. And you broke into the darkness and you brought hope. Jesus, you are the light of the world. And tonight, I just pray that anybody who needs your victory, that they would experience a breakthrough tonight. Jesus, that chains would be broken in your power. God, it's not, it's not eloquence of speech. It's nothing. But God, your kingdom is a kingdom of power. And so, Lord, tonight, I pray victory for my brothers and sisters who need it. Over depression, over anxiety, over, over suicidal thoughts, over self-harm. God, over, oh, Jesus, I just pray that you would bring victory over addictions. God, I pray for those who are heartbroken right now that you would heal them. That you would bring healing. And God, I pray for restoration for broken relationships. I pray that you would do your work. Because, Jesus, he came to bind up the brokenhearted. And so, Father, whatever the hopeless situation tonight, God, you know it. And I pray that you would speak your truth, that they would cling onto your promise, onto your hope, onto the light of the world. So, Jesus, we ask that your name would be glorified this Christmas and that we would stand in awe again of the wonder that you came to this earth. Lord, we love you. And we thank you in Jesus' name.